All right, let's have a time of prayer for those people right now. I'm watching the Super Bowl later today, and I was thinking about Tom Brady. Now, there's a lot of thoughts out there about Tom Brady. If you don't know a whole lot about football, Tom Brady is 41 years old, and today he's appearing in his ninth Super Bowl. Now, to put that in perspective, no other team other than the Patriots, which Tom Brady is on, has appeared in more than eight Super Bowls. So Tom Brady by himself has been in more Super Bowls than any other team. And I was thinking, what is the secret sauce? (laughs) Right? Like, how does this guy do it? So this past week, I was uh, using my good friend Google that I use often. And I typed in, what is Tom Brady's workout regimen? And what is Tom Brady's diet? Recently, his personal chef, how about that, have a personal chef, told the Boston Globe that outside of an occasional cheat meal, he has no white sugar, no white flour, no MSG, no coffee, no caffeine, no dairy, no highly processed food. I'm guessing he has no life either. And, as you can imagine, his workout routine is incredibly robust, and it doesn't stop in the regular season. And I'm thinking, man, this guy has prioritized his entire life around football and around winning. And I had this thought, I wonder what are my priorities? I wonder... When we look at our lives, what do they show that our priorities truly are? When I was a kid, my, uh, my dad got his very first cell phone. Now, I remember this. How many of you guys remember cell phones like that, right? So I don't think it was a cell phone. I really think it was a brick. So you had to flip it open. You had to take an antenna, and you had to open it up to talk. Now, if you're under 25, you're like, what are you talking about? There was a world where there wasn't any cell phones. I'm um, just on the brink of that. But So my dad got his very first cell phone, and it was like a big deal in our house. Now he could carry a phone around. I remember as a little kid, I'm like, you don't need a cord? How is this possible? So he got his very first cell phone, and um, I have an iPhone. So last year, the end of last year, they, they had me do this update on my iPhone, and I was introduced to this, this uh, new feature, I guess, through my phone. It was called Screen Time. Is anybody familiar with Screen Time? Anybody? So what Screen Time does, if you're, if, you're, if you're not sure, is it tracks how much time you spend on your phone and where on your phone you spend your time. So I'm like, cool, Screen Time. There's all these people in the world that are addicted to their phone. I'm not addicted to my phone. So I have no worries about it. So, so at the end of a week, it popped up. You spent this much time on your phone. I'm like, okay, cool. So I looked, looked at it, and it said, my average time on my phone, average, not one, not two, not three, four hours a day, average, on my phone. And I was thinking, my first thought was, nah, there's something wrong there. But my second thought was, I wonder how much of that time was I with my wife. And instead of prioritizing my wife, I prioritized my phone. You see, all of us, no matter 
what age you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter how much money you make, no matter your background, we all live with this tension in our lives. It's this tension of our priorities. And something that we all know is one of life's greatest challenges is managing the tension of our priorities. We have all these conflicting things and trying to figure out where do we spend our time and what do we prioritize. That takes us to Matthew 12. Because we see this tension played out in the life of Jesus and in the life of another group of people. We see this tension and we see where Jesus placed his priorities and we see where this other group of people placed their priorities. Matthew as one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If, if, um, if you study it, as, as Gary was saying, this book is all about who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 12, verse number 1, the scripture reads, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. So Jesus is walking through with some of his followers, his disciples. They're hungry, so they broke off the top of the wheat and they ate some of the kernel or whatnot. Now, they happened to do this on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was um, a significant day, and it was at the heart of the Jewish religious system, which was the religion of the day. Now, the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of that day, and the Pharisees, um, they were kind of like the religious police that like to tell everybody what to do all the time. Have you ever met somebody like that, some religious police? Okay. No pointing fingers, they're in the room. They were the religious police. And on the Sabbath day, there were certain things you could do, and there were certain things you couldn't do. In fact, there were 39 different forms of work, according to the Old Testament law, that were forbidden on the Sabbath day. For example, one of those was you couldn't even take a bath because if you spilled water, then you would have to work to clean up the water. And what the Pharisees would do is they had all these laws. Then they also had all these additional traditions, and they had all of these memorized, and they tried to hold everybody to this standard. So these men see Jesus, the followers of Jesus, eating some heads of the grain, and immediately they jump. On Jesus, verse 2, it says, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus, how can you allow this to happen? Don't you see what your followers are doing? How come you're not calling them out? Look what Jesus' response is to them. Verse number 3, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Jesus brings up an Old Testament event, an Old Testament story that the Pharisees would be very familiar with. He brings up King David, um, who King David to these guys would have been one of the heroes, um, just like Abraham, Jacob. King David was somebody that they knew all about. And there was a time when King David ate something he wasn't supposed to eat at a time that he wasn't supposed to eat it with some of his men. You can read the story in 1 Samuel 21. And Jesus says, hey, what do you say about that? He brings up another instance in verse number 5. So he brings up king, a king. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath day 
in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent. Jesus brings up how the priests in the Old Testament worked by offering sacrifices on the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't condemn them. Verse number seven, or verse number six, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. In the Pharisees' eyes, there's nothing greater than the temple. The temple was the center of all of their worship. It was the center of their entire religious system. It was the place that Jews gathered, not just religiously, but for social implications, for cultural implications. And in verse number 6, Jesus is saying, there's somebody greater. There's something greater than the temple, and that is me. He's saying, I am greater than the very thing that you center your lives around. I am greater than the place where you gather for social implications. I am greater than the center of your religious system. I am greater. And I want you to know that Jesus is greater than whatever you're facing. And Jesus is greater than whatever relational conflicts you have, whatever sickness you have, whatever pain you have. Whatever hurts you have, wherever you find yourself at this time and place in your life, that Jesus is greater than that. And I also want to say that Jesus is greater than whatever you're building your life around that's outside of him. Wherever the affections of our heart tend to go, I don't know about you, but a lot of times my heart tends to go to other things but Jesus. And Jesus is greater than those things. Notice what he says in the next verse. He says, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, this Sabbath day that you think is such a huge deal, this Sabbath day that that you think is bigger than me, I want you to know I am Lord of that thing. I am bigger than that. He he makes a phrase in the previous verse, In verse number 7, he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Can we say that that together, that phrase together, ready? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's say it one more time just to keep us awake a little bit. Uh, How how many of you guys got your coffee this morning? Okay, good. How many of you did not get coffee? How many of you don't like coffee? Man, y'all need Jesus, okay? He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And this is what's so cool about this passage. Uh, I gotta stay up here. I gotta say this. So when, when the podium was down here, right before I got up here, my wife goes, "Hey, you need to make sure you move that that podium up there." I'm like, why? She's like, "Because you're short and the people won't be able to see you." <laughs> How many of you guys, you know, your wife keeps you humble, right? See, I'm not short. I'm just travel size. So. So Jesus is going to do, he's about to not just say, I desire mercy. He's about to show them what mercy really is. He's not just going to say it. He's going to show it. Look what he does in verse number eight. He's going on from that place. He goes into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They, these are the men in the previous verses, these are the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. So they're going with Jesus to this place. 
they ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus goes to this, the synagogue there. He sees a man with a shriveled hand. No doubt they had placed him there, the Pharisees had placed him there, to try to put Jesus in a bind. And they say, Jesus, is it okay to heal him? Now, when I, when I first read that and I'm first thinking about that, I'm thinking, wait a second. Jesus never said that he was going to heal that man. Jesus doesn't go up to him and heal him. Not, not initially. They're just walking into a place. And, and this, same, this same account is given in two other places in Luke chapter 6 and Mark 3. It, all, it says there's a crowd gathered around, so get the scene. So there's a crowd gathered around. It says that in the other two accounts. The Pharisees no doubt had placed this man here. Jesus walks up, doesn't, doesn't say Jesus went to heal him, doesn't say that at all. But the Pharisee said, is it lawful for you to heal him? It's because the Pharisees knew that Jesus had the power to do it. It's because the Pharisees knew in their heart that Jesus was not just a man. That Jesus was more and Jesus was greater. And that's because the scripture says that God has put inside of all of us this something inside of us that says there's something greater out there. You know, maybe in your life you've tried to ignore God. Or maybe in your life, maybe you've identified or you currently identify yourself as an atheist. And you've tried to suppress this idea of God. You try to kind of bury it and act like God isn't real. And notice what the scripture says. Paul writes in Romans chapter number one. He says, since um, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. These Pharisees, they were hostile towards Jesus, not because he wasn't real, not because he wasn't who he said he was, but because if they admitted that Jesus was the Lord and that Jesus was God, they would have to surrender their lives to him. And a lot of the time, I think if we're honest, It's not because we don't know that he's real, but because we don't want to live our life with the implications that God is real. But here's the irony in the whole thing. The very God that we avoid at times is the very God that loves us passionately. And the very God that pursues us even though we run from him. And the very God that even though maybe you've had a situation in your life or something that's caused you to turn your back, that God pursues you with reckless love like Matt's um, led us to sing about. That God is for you, and that God is pursuing and chasing after you. In this story, it isn't because the Pharisees don't know that he is who he says he is. It's because they don't want to surrender themselves to him. Verse number 11, notice what Jesus says to them, to the Pharisees. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on Sabbath, on this day, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, now this is a dramatic scene because there are people all gathered around. 
stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. He tells the Pharisees, people are valuable. And you look at this man, he didn't do anything to deserve healing. It doesn't say the man had incredible faith. It doesn't say this man, he went to church his entire life. It doesn't say he had a bunch of Bible verses memorized. It doesn't say that he was a follower of Jesus or maybe he had a connection with Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus just saw him and Jesus healed him. It's because there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. All we can do is embrace it. There's nothing we could do to earn God's love. This man hadn't earned the love of God. He just embraced the love of God. Jesus didn't go to him and say, I'm going to bless you because you deserve it. And by the way, Jesus doesn't come to us and say, I'm going to bless you because you're such a better person than your neighbor. No, it's because of the good graces of Jesus, of, of what we've been given in him. There's nothing we can do that will make God love us more. And there's nothing we can do that will make God love us less. So what are the Pharisees' response in verse 14 to seeing this whole thing play out? But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. What? Whoa, am I missing something? Jesus just healed a man, and they say, no, no, let's go figure out how we can get rid of him. We've got to get rid of Jesus because what Jesus had done is he had exposed something. And in the process of exposing the misplaced priorities of the Pharisees, he also revealed his own passionate priorities. And as we, over the next ten minutes before we wrap it up, this is what we're going to talk about, these, these two thoughts right here. Number one, the misplaced priorities of the Pharisees. But number two, the passionate priorities of Jesus. This is what we're going to do. Jesus invites us to make his priorities our priorities. But notice, number one, the misplaced priorities of the Pharisees. Why were the Pharisees upset? Because Jesus was breaking their traditions. None of what was happening in Matthew 12 was breaking the actual Jewish law. They weren't working in the wheat fields. The law said nothing about healing on the Sabbath. I mean, goodness, nobody could heal on the Sabbath anyways. The priority of the Pharisees ultimately had nothing to do with the law and everything to do with controlling people, manipulating people, having power, having prestige. Jesus later um, talked about this in Matthew. He's he's referring to the Pharisees, said, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves, they're not willing to lift up a finger. Everything they do is done for people to see. For they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. Jesus got right to the heart and said, I see your true desires. You don't love God. You don't love others. You want control. You want power. You want people's praise. Ultimately, everything you do is about you. And it's easy for me to stand up here and be like, the Pharisees, terrible people, they didn't love Jesus. But if I'm honest, 
I just be real? And by the way, we can't be real in church. We can't be real anywhere. I see a lot of Pharisee and a lot of the selfishness in the Pharisees in my own life. For, for, um, for a little while, I was, I was working at Costco, and this lady, um, she, she had me go out there and, and help her load up some stuff. Um, in her car, and, and she had two flats. You guys know, like, two flats at Costco. And she had it loaded up with, like, water bottles and sodas and, like, all the – I mean, it's, like, so much stuff. I feel like I'm getting a workout just putting her stuff in her car, you know. So I go out there, and I notice she has a guy with her that's about my age. Come to find out it's her son. And he's standing there, and, and I'm loading everything in the car. And I'm sitting here – or not sitting here. I'm working. It's hot outside. And I'm like, why is this dude not doing this? Right? Like, it's hot. I got stuff to do. He's putting me behind. Like, I think this guy's a bomb. This guy's lazy. What is wrong with this dude? And I was even thinking in my mind as I'm doing it, I'm like, I wonder if I could say, like, a sarcastic comment that might get him to come over here. But I got to say it in a way that's not rude because then I'll get in trouble. You know, I'm trying to. But I couldn't figure it out, so I didn't. And, and t- towards the end, like, I had just lifted my last thing in there, and I'm about to leave, and I'm, like, ticked off. Like, don't talk to me. Don't even look at me. He comes up, and he's like, hey, man, I'm really sorry that I couldn't help you. <laughs> sorry, you, look, at, you're standing there. Like, you got two legs. You got two arms. What are you? He's like, I actually just had major surgery. And I feel really bad. I was still going to do it, but my mom, my mom wouldn't let me lift anything, so that's why she asked you, and I'm really sorry that I couldn't help. Oh, boy. <laughs> Here I am. can't believe I have to do this. I can't believe it's hot. And rather than just selfishly, selfishly, selflessly loving and serving these people, all I thought about was, I can't believe that I have to do this. And I prioritized my schedule and my life around me. You ever done that before? You ever been there before? In Matthew, Jesus, a, a very famous passage, the Pharisees came to Jesus with their misplaced priorities. They were all about law. They're all about doing all these things, all about their name. The Pharisees come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Many of us would know the story. He says, this is the first and great commandment. He says to love God. He says the second is like to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. Let's say the word all together. Ready? All. All the law. All the prophets. They hinge on, they depend on, they hang on these ideas of loving God and loving your neighbor and loving people. And if you read all the law and you have everything memorized, like you know everything about the Bible, you have all the theology, you, um, you spent on the, the 40 days with Jesus, you know it all, you know how to come to church, you know how to sit down, you know how to give a hug, shake a hand, raise your hand in worship, whatever but you don't love people, you missed it. You could know the whole law, but if it doesn't get you to loving God and loving people, you're reading it wrong. Let's pretend you got your dream car, 
right? You have, you have, I don't know how many of you guys have like a dream car in your mind, like, man, if only I could have this car. Imagine you have your dream car in your driveway right now. Brand new or just redone. Leather interior, tinted windows, clean as a whistle. You can eat off the floor. It's got the sound system. You're taking selfies with it. You're inviting your friends over to come and look at it. Sitting there in your driveway. You're going to take it. It just was delivered. You're going to take it on its first cruise. And you're going to go and take it to your friend's house. You're going to take it somewhere. You're, you're going to show somebody your car. You get in there, turn the key over. Nothing. Oh, oh I j- just got this. Like, it's, it's amazing. It's got leather interior. It's got the rams. It's got it all. This is my dream car. You turn it over and you're like, okay, maybe I did it wrong. Or let me, maybe, no sound, nothing. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm doing this. So you get out the car, you open up the hood. You look in the hood and there's no engine. Like, hold on. Everything is in perfect condition to go. It's nice. It's got tinted windows. It's got leather seats. It's got everything I dreamed of. But guess what will happen without the engine? It doesn't go anywhere. And spiritually, we can have it all. But if we don't have love, we're not going anywhere. If we don't have love for others, Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, I have all kinds of spiritual gifts. But if I don't love people, guess what it profits me? nothing. And in this story, in the midst of Pharisees that are all hung up on all these things, Jesus goes to a man with a withered hand, and he simply loves him. And that brings us to this, the passionate priority of Jesus. The passionate priority of Jesus Remember in the story, I I referenced it in Luke 6 and Mark 3, the same story. There's a lot of people standing around. So what Jesus could have done is he could have started teaching eloquently to all these people. Or he could have gone around to the people that had a lot of money or the popular people that he could have a name with. He didn't do that. He went to a man that could do nothing for him, a man that had a withered hand. He looks at him with compassion, and he loves him. Over and over and over again, Jesus loved the outsider. Jesus prioritized people. And what Jesus invites all of us to, whether we're from Emmanuel, whether we're from Solano Valley, he invites us to prioritize loving people. Because Jesus prioritized loving people. We will never live like Jesus until First, we love like Jesus. We will never live like Jesus until we love like Jesus. Let's be honest. How do we do that? Like, how do we get the power to love like Jesus? When I wake up in the morning, I don't think I, I, I see, I hear some people talking. I'm like, man, you guys are so spiritual. Like, I'm not very spiritual. When I wake up in the morning, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's already morning. Hit the snooze button. 
Some people, I think they wake up and they're like, they start praying right away or they start loving people. People tick me off, right? Like, peop- sometimes I'm like, this person's a moron. Sometimes I'm in line, you know, maybe you're in line and you have like the coupon lady in front of you, or here's the worst for me. 20 items or less in the quick checkout, them people do not have 20 items. So what I'm doing is I'm counting, right? Am I the only one that does that? I, I have a hard time naturally loving people. So how do we do this? Where does the power come to love people? This is the message of the gospel. That we are fully known and we are fully loved. In other words, God knows everything about us, yet he still loves us. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our mistakes. He knows what nobody else knows. He knows um, what we did last night, last week. He knows how we handle our families. He knows everything. This is what he does. He still loves us. He still loves us unconditionally. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a silly illustration, and you just follow me because we're going to go somewhere with this. How many of you in here like candy? You like candy? Okay, I love sugar. Sugar loves me more because it sticks to me, if you know what I mean. I love sugar. Let's pretend that the owners of the Jelly Belly factory for your birthday said, I'm going to give you every single Jelly Belly in our factory. Like, I'm going to give you all the jelly beans. So now you have millions. I know it's silly. Go with me, okay? How many of you guys like jelly beans, like jelly beans? Okay. How many of you are like me? I've lived in in this area for a while. I've been to the Jelly Belly so many times. I'm like, I never want to go back. Anybody? Okay. So you go to Jelly Belly factory. You know, there's millions of jelly beans. Okay. You see them all. So you've been given all these jelly beans. So now you're like, oh, gosh, I have millions of jelly beans. She's like, where am I going to store them? So you put them in your garage. You put them in your backyard. You put them in your bedroom. You put them everywhere. They're on the kitchen. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I still have more. So you go out and you rent storage units. And you start paying all this money so you could hold your literally millions and millions and millions of jelly beans. Somebody comes to you. It's like, hey, can I have a bag of jelly beans? You have them everywhere. They're in your bedroom, your living room, your garage, your backyard. You have storage units full of them. They're all over the place. So it's like, can I have a jelly bean? Like, ah, I don't know if I can give you a jelly bean. Make you a deal. Give me $10. I'll give you not just one bag. I'll give you two bags of jelly beans. You know, jelly beans are expensive. It's like, first, like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You have millions of jelly beans. How come you won't give me any of your jelly beans? Like, they're everywhere. Can't you just give, like, a small portion of the huge amount of jelly beans that you've been given. And while that's a silly illustration, I wonder if a lot of times we lose sight of the incredible love that God has showed us. And because of that, we have a hard time giving love. I wonder how many of us, rather than looking at the love we've been given, we look at that person and what we think they deserve or how they're inconveniencing us. 1 John 4 says we love. Why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. 
In other words, God initiated, so I show it to others. God loved me, so I love him. God is the one that gave it also. Because I've been loved, now I have the freedom to love. The power to love doesn't come from yourself. The power to love others comes from the promise that we've already been loved by God. I have to say, I, I was here a couple weeks ago. Um, I knew that I was going to be speaking. Gary had so graciously invited me. Solano Valley Church, i got to say, you guys have a great pastor. Like for, for a pastor to be here as long as Gary's been here, I'm just telling you guys, you guys are blessed. Because pastors, they're here a year or two, and then they peace out and go down the road. For Gary to be here, I'm telling you, he's a great guy. He's a phenomenal pastor. I, I knew I was going to be here, so I wanted to come here a couple weeks ago. Um, and I could say so much more. I really mean that. So I want to come a couple weeks ago and just to kind of get a feel for things. And I, as, I, as I was leaving, I told Gary this. I was like, this church is a place where Jesus is at. Because this is a church of love. Because you guys love each other. And while, as a, from an outsider committing, I'm like, this is a place of love. While you love one another, I wonder how well do you love people outside of here? Emmanuel, Solano Valley. I wonder how well do you love people that have a different political party than you? I wonder how do you love people that can do nothing for you? How do you love the guest that comes into this church for the first time and doesn't know anybody. I wonder in our lives, do we love to be loved? Or do we love because we're already loved? In other words, do I love you or do you love somebody because you need their love back? Like, I need you to love me, so I'm going to love you, and in, in turn, if I love you, you'll love me back. That's not love. That's manipulation. It's like, for my, my sense of self-worth, I, I, I need you to love me, so I'm going to do something for you. As a follower of Jesus, we don't need to love for that reason. We love because we have already been loved by God. That is why we love. We don't love to be loved. You don't need a relationship to fill your love tank if you're single in here. I'm going to tell you, look at the cross of Calvary. Look what Jesus did for you. When we rest in the reality that we have been unconditionally loved by God, it frees us to love unconditionally. Jesus invites all of us to make his passion, loving people, our passion. Why can we do that? Where does the power come from? It comes from the fact that we have been unconditionally loved by God. Maybe you're new here. Maybe, um, maybe you come here and you have a different background or, or you're just checking things out or maybe you don't have much of a, a Christian background. I want you to know that God loves you. And if you will come to him in simple faith, and put your faith in Jesus alone, you can become a Christian. That is, how you, that is how you have a relationship with God, and today you can do that. If you are a Christian this morning, would you consider and think about the love of God, about how much you're loved? And in response to the love that you've been given, just say, Lord, since you've loved me this much, I'm going to make 
your passionate priority my passionate priority? Will you prioritize today, tomorrow, this week, loving other people? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I ask you that as a group of people in here, we would just look at what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. But I ask you that we would make your passion our passion. But I pray that we wouldn't see people as what they can do for us. God, we would see people like you see people with love. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for all that you've done for us. I pray for every person in this room that we would just fix our eyes on your love and your truth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.